and welcome back. My name is Mike Charles, and I happen to be in the wonderful, cozy, creative living space of the artist Natasha Barnes. And Natasha, thanks for having us back in your space for one more round of podcast. Hello, Mike. We're getting to know you as an artist and as a as a brand, but also as a person. We've had a, an introduction to you. We've had an episode where we've looked at what happens in your studio and your creative process. And right now, we're about to head off to the art fair. But first off, I've got to say, you make a really good cup of coffee. And this is quite unlike any, any cup of coffee I've had in my life. What is the story here? Actually, Mark, now that's, that's actually quite a joke because um, I have to confess something to everyone listening out there is that I'm an instant coffee drinker. And uh, it's one of my weaknesses in life. And my friends all rag me about it because I drink such bad coffee. However, <laughs> on one of my many adventures, um, I found myself in Vietnam and uh, most recently with my mother, she'd uh, turned 70 and we uh, decided to do something different and we went to Vietnam for a few days and we actually took a motorcycle tour and, and got mom clinging onto the back of a pre-war <laughs> motorbike. Age of 70. Age of 70. She's doing great. And um, <laughs> they have this wonderful coffee in Vietnam. I mean, it's just... Um, so tasty and and even the way in which you actually present the coffee is different to Vietnamese coffee and you get these little percolators that are you buy you can buy them on the streets for like a dollar really and you put the the ground coffee into it with a little bit of boiling water and then it just um, drips down into your cup and back in the day when I first went to Vietnam in the um, early 90s, I remember they used to put condensed milk into all my coffee, which mm. at the time was wonderful. <laughs> but I think I've outgrown condensed milk. <laughs> all, all my waistlines outgrown condensed milk. So anyway, the, um, the hotel we stayed in, the owner had his own uh, coffee plantation. And I love the coffee so much that I, when I asked the staff about it, they went to the kitchen and just got me a whole kilo packet and off I went. Wow. And that's what you're having. <laughs> it's amazing. All the way from, from the source. From, uh, wow, Vietnam. It's delicious. And thank you for, for bringing such a, a cool cup. You're welcome. As we get settled into another cool conversation. And right now, we're talking about your art, your commercial art, and possibly the sort of more mysterious and lesser known aspects of what it takes to be a commercial artist, to make a living selling your art. And it's that final bit to actually get it to market and to sell it. Because to create, that's wonderful. But... Uh, to actually <laughs> to bring home the bacon at the end of the day. It's, it's not as easy as, as one might imagine, am I right? No, not at all. And you know, the, the thing is, what I'm trying to get across to everyone in these podcasts, it's not one singular thing that stands out and makes you that great artist or defines your career. It's like a puzzle. And there are all these little blocks that have to work together for the puzzle to be complete. Mm. So... There are many platforms that you can sell your art, and there are artists that successfully sell their art online or through galleries or through solo exhibitions or whatever medium you decide to promote yourself on. But I decided to go the art fair routes because I'm a people's person. I love, um, I, don't get me wrong, I love being on my, by myself and having the solitude of of living alone and, and creating, but there comes a time where I need to interact and to connect with those people that actually buy my art because that's what fuels my inspiration more than anything else. And so my platform and my preferred medium for selling my art would be the art fair space, more so than solo exhibitions or gallery trade. 
Wow. And let's talk about the actual art fairs and how did it start for you, your first experience heading off to an art fair? So the first fair I, I did um, on my own was in 1998. Well, maybe we can go to an earlier period in my life. There was a, a fair in South Africa called Art in the Park and it's still going. It's been around for many, many years. It was a platform where good contemporary artists could sell their work in KwaZulu-Natal and a percentage of the, the money went to charity. And it was a wonderful place for galleries to discover new and young artists. And I uh, was part of Art in the Park for 10 years. And if you had waved a magic wand or shown me a crystal ball in those days and said to me that I'm at Art in the Park now selling my art, but in 10 years' time I'd actually be in New York, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> but, you know, life is what happens while you're planning other things, and my life was no different from that. And anyway, I found myself in a different direction in quite a short space of time, as I have mentioned in the first podcast. And um, my first fair that I went to, I attended in Abu Dhabi, in the then U or the UAE, and it was uh, 1997, the end of 1997. Yeah. And at this particular art fair, I met somebody who was a publisher and also a game changer in my career. And, you know, uh, sometimes you stumble upon these things and there has to be some luck involved. A lot of hard work, but there's also some luck. And it was just my lucky day, and he said to me that there was this – um, platform that you could do business within the art world and it was the Birmingham Spring Fair which still runs today but in those days they had halls dedicated to the business of art so in these halls would gather artists, art galleries, publishers, printmakers, framers, um, mount cutters, machinery, anything to do with the business of art Yeah, and that is where it all started for me. I went home, Googled Birmingham, well, it wasn't, I don't even think we had Google then, but maybe I looked on an atlas, maybe I had a round ball atlas, <laughs> but I found Birmingham on the map, and uh, I, I, remember, I do remember faxing them um, application, because I didn't have my own fax machine, and I had to keep running to the um, estate agent on the corner, <laughs> and paying 20 rand every time I wanted to fax something internationally, because they'd never faxed internationally before. Wow. Um, and that's kind of a memory of my start of the art fair. But that was, yeah, 1997. And you've been at it ever since. Ever since. Incredible. And let's talk about how do you gear up for a year of art fairs? So the process really has to do with the destination. Because as easy as it is, or as people seem to think, it's actually quite complicated. Because every destination has a different clientele. You can't take the same art to Dubai as you can take to New York. Because in Dubai, you're dealing with a different culture and you have to be mindful and respectful of people's traditions, their cultures, their religion, and the way in which they buy art. So it's very important that you give them the experience they want, but that you stay within the boundaries. So you've got to color within the lines when you're presenting yourself at these fairs because you're doing so as professionally as possible. So my year would start with, um, and, and by the way, the fairs I do, um, is particularly if they're successful, I, I repeat them. So you, you build up a following in each country. And there are very few countries in the world 
that my art is not sold today or where I haven't traveled to that continent to do an art fair. So I kind of have my calendar sorted out and it's been the same calendar for the last 20 years. So I know that, for example, every October, for as long as I can remember, I'm in London and and every every November I'm in Singapore and, and every May I'm in Hong Kong. And my year would start with, um, it normally, for me, my year starts in December and I take a vacation. I plan something, I sit down and I decide in January of the previous year, I'm going to go uh, to Ethiopia or to Nepal or somewhere exotically crazy, just <laughs> something different. And um, I always take the advice that somebody once told me that when you travel, for yourself and for inspiration, you either go way above your station or way below. So to go way above my station would cost quite a bit of money. So I tend to like to go way below and do it like on a shoestring, even though I know I could, if I wanted to treat myself to that night in that fancy hotel, I could. But to really get that true experience for me as as a person and and to to find the authentic Natasha and, and just have fun, I'm quite happy just to, you know, grab the first bus, see where it's going, sleep in a tent, um, eat rice for three weeks. I mean, things like this is makes me happy, makes gives me inspiration, you know. So I choose my destination and my year starts in December. During that time, I switch off my phone, I switch off my life, I disappear and I'm never short of traveling companions. I've got a list of friends that are all single that follow similar lifestyles to myself. And they'll phone me up and go, I want to come with you in December. Remember, we're going to go to Mexico or, we, or we, I'm coming with you to Sri Lanka or wherever we decide. So there's always something exciting to look forward to. Then the year starts. And by the time I go on my trip in December, I normally have already started to apply my mind to the first fair, which is um, New York. So for New York, I know I can think a little bit more out the box. They're very edgy. They love bright colors. It's a really fun, fun uh, people to to work with. You know, the Americans appreciate art. They love to show you what their homes look like, how your art sits in the home. They ask you valid questions, but they also want to know the things like we've been speaking about, you know, how do you, um, how long does it take? How do you get your work here? Where can I see your work? So they've got, they, they are a people that um, are very inquisitive and often they will ask you to write a personal note to them or to uh, a loved one on the back of a painting because if it's a gift they're very personal and they treat you with celebrity which I love selling work in America because they always make me feel so special it's like <laughs> yeah. I'm going to exhibit in New York and I am a celebrity if only for the duration of the art fair so my I take my I put a different hat on when I go to New York. Mm. I can do crazy things. I can splash paint. It's the type of show that I could probably dip my own hair into black ink and splash it around on my canvas. And they'd love it. They'd, they'd love it. And I would love it, you know. So it's you kind of start planning your year around the events. And then from there, the year would roll on. And the next one that would come up would be Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is one of my favorites, okay? It's not my favorite. There is a favorite, <laughs> but Hong Kong is one of my favorites. And it's just this huge, bustling city. And every time I step into the space in Hong Kong, I think back to my first 
visit, and that was in 1996. I went to Hong Kong. So I went in 96 and I went to 97 again, and I went as a tourist. And I often walk along the, the waterfront where the, um, the Star Ferry is, and I remember standing there as this youngster looking at these buildings, looking at the city with all this energy, thinking, my goodness, I wonder what it's like to live here or do business here. And I wish you could have given me a crystal ball and say, Natasha, you would spend the, the next 10 years of your life, you're going to be here every single year. And you see that huge exhibition center that they're busy building right there. <laughs> well, you're going to be exhibiting in that your art and you're going to sell to collectors all over China. And I thought, I mean, I didn't think it to myself, but I wish someone could have shown me that picture because I wouldn't have believed them. Amazing. So it's kind of like, that's what feeds me, what feeds my soul. And you can hear, even now that I'm talking about it, I, I just, it brings back energy. Yeah. And, and that's what makes me tick. Brilliant. But now you mentioned that there was a particular favorite of yours oh. what is the highlight of your your annual <laughs> calendar oh it has to be singapore it is just it's a small intimate fair and it's held in the f1 pit building which is on the formula one track yeah so um it's a not a particularly pretty building it's just three i mean if you compare it to hong kong uh, which is just this amazing, huge <laughs> exhibition center. And we just won one little fraction in it. When you go to Singapore, it's this tiny, intimate show. But the people are incredible. And they are just the most beautiful, well-natured, soft-spoken, delightful folk to sell art to. I absolutely <laughs> love it. And they're very – Singaporean society is a lot like – it reminds me of home. They're very child-friendly. They're very happy people. So the work that you take there, it's happy, child-friendly. You're not going to take things like guns and you're not going to have murder, death, die all over your painting. You know, nothing. There's going to be no nudes and nothing with pornographic overtones, which might still fit for America or could go in London. You're going to be very conservative in your art choice and you're going to be very conservative in your colors. Mm. But they are a delightful, delightful people. And what I love about Singapore is that it's a pretty show. And it's, it's fun because these people come through and they ask you these lovely, valid questions. They bring the whole family. And when you, it's lovely. It's always hot. And you kind of, you know, you'd be popping out for a beer and you'd stand on the veranda. <laughs> and everyone sort of, I don't smoke, but you know, other people will stand smoking on the veranda. And it's tropical heat. And you kind of... It's just this, there's an energy and a peacefulness about Singapore that I just love going there, especially to do work. Okay, now you've got us all excited. We want to we get there. We want to get to that level. And uh, for, for the artists listening who are, are keen for some tips on how to start taking the first steps to, to getting to these fantastic fairs, what advice can you give? How can one start to make moves in this direction? You know, something that's very important and um I hope to touch on this in future podcasts when I'm going to be doing a series on how to promote your art and, and market yourself. And one of the most important things in this is relationships. Mm. In order to be successful in the art world and in any business, but in the art world more so, you need to build very strong relationships. So if you think you can jump onto the next aeroplane, turn up in Singapore, display your work and you're going to have a great fair you're in for a big surprise. Yeah. Because what I'm ex describing here 
is 25 years experience that I have, the mistakes I've made that I've learned from, and also the connections that I've built. So for me, in every region, I have storage, I have access to people who are my support base, be it framers, be it drivers, be it people that come and deliver my art for me, um, a collection of galleries, a collection of friends, um, a collection of places that I stay. So my support base is something that I've built up through relationships over the past 25 years. And that is very important. So if you are thinking of, of moving in these circles, you first need to start by finding yourself a strong gallery to represent you. And the reason why um, you need this is because artists, sometimes they're great at making art, but not selling it. And that is the difference. When you do an art fair, which is something I'm sure we'll touch on in this podcast, it's important that you look the part and that you look presentable. I'm not saying that artists are not presentable, but Mark, it's very difficult for someone to hand over a check for $10,000 to an artist standing there in a pair of paint splattered jeans and their hair in a pony. Yeah. You kind of, you know, but if you're there in your black suit and you look like you know what you're doing, they feel more comfortable. So it's a matter of trust, and that's very important. And when it comes to, to building that level of trust, how do you work with clients? How do you engage with them? So the most important thing for me is that a client has to get to know me as a person, which is exactly what's happening here. I'm not going to jump up and pounce on every client that walks into my stand and goes, oh, can I help you? Have you seen this painting? It will look perfect in your house. You know, a person wants to browse. You want to look at it from the comfort of your own home. You want to be able to, which is how social media has played such an important role and will continue to play a massive role in the future of buying art. People walk onto your stand, they have a look at something, they think it's lovely, they ask if they can take a picture, sometimes they don't, it doesn't matter, let them enjoy the art, they're not about to go home and rip it off, because trust me, no one can paint like you. Let them take a picture, they go back home, they're looking at it, they look at their wall, and then suddenly in the middle of the night you get a text message to say, can't stop thinking about this work of art, have to have it. And you can complete the transaction on social media in many times, which is starting to happen uh, more and more. Or they'll come back the next day because what have they done? They've gone home and they've researched you. And they've made sure mm. that this girl who says her painting is worth $10,000, that she really is who she says she is, that this isn't some made-up person. Oh, my goodness, look, there's Natasha. She's on Instagram. Oh, yes, she really does live in South Africa. Oh, my goodness, yeah, she is getting on the aeroplane with her paintings. She is a real person. So how do you build the trust? You show them yourself. And how do you show them yourself? Through marketing, whether that is through your website, through newsletters, through online platforms, through other websites that sell online art, through radio interviews, whichever platform you decide to choose in our new world or in the old world where we still did things through the galleries, it's a, it's a matter of trust. Once again, that's how they buy art. And looking at the kind of buyers that these various international art fairs attract, who are we typically talking about here? Can anyone attend? Oh, absolutely. I mean, an art fair is there for people's enjoyment. I mean, as much as we love to sell art, we are also there as a form, I would say, maybe entertainment is the wrong word, but education. So um, I do a brand of fairs that is open to anyone. 
and we have um, a small entry fee. Obviously, ex- to put on an art fair is hugely expensive. I'm sure. And to exhibit at an art fair is astronomical. I mean, if if I really had to tell the readers what one pays for a booth, um, it's it's just frightening. However, um, the people that come through often they have some art fairs are free, and you you earn commission. And other art fairs, you pay a small ticket to come in. But then you get the people that really want to be there and they really want to see what's on offer. And um, they can educate themselves or buy some art. Now I'm starting to get the picture that you're not just flown around the world. You actually have to put up a lot of money yourself to get to these art fairs. <laughs> and uh, once you get there, now you've, you've forked out um, a considerable amount of money to get your, your space. How do you promote yourself at these fairs and get people to, to come to you? <laughs> So that is, um, it's twofold, okay, so it's the relationship that, that you have with the art fair and the relationship that you have with your client. So the art fair, part of the fee that you pay them, this huge fee, is they've got to undertake to market the fair. So if they undertake to get 20,000 people through the door, then um, that's kind of the, part of your the payment that you made goes towards this marketing budget and they're getting the people in there and that's how the organizers make their money by selling floor space. And how do you get people to your stand? You tap into your existing clientele. So often um, you have repeat clients. So if I go to art fairs, um, most art fairs I have a repeat client, even if the client doesn't purchase a second piece of artwork, they just come to say, hi, Natasha, I still love my piece I bought from you last year. Remember this one. And then you think, oh, my goodness, which one was that again? <laughs> and they kind of, because for them, it was an amazing experience. And they bought maybe their first piece of original art and it cost them a lot of money. And they expect you to remember them like they remember you because they attended the fair and they bought one piece of art. But you may have maybe sold 10 pieces of art on that particular day and you just can't remember who you've spoken to. So it's always good to keep notes. but. Mm-hmm. Um, I've landed myself in hot water on more than one occasion. <laughs> but basically, that's how it works. Um, so I would be responsible to try and educate my clientele that I will be available, that I'm there, and that I have new work. You know, this is what I'm bringing, and, and come and see the, the new work. And sometimes they reach out to you before, and they say, Natasha, I saw in the newsletter you'll be attending. May I have tickets, or may I reserve a piece or you'll see me on Sunday, I'm definitely coming, I'm looking for a new piece of art. Ah. That happens all the time. And for, for someone who is one of those, those first-time buyers um, looking to get an original Natasha Barnes, how would I select a piece of art for my home? Is there a, sort of a typical process that uh, a buyer would go through? So most buyers, especially first-time buyers, um, have an idea of they're renovating or they're buying a piece of art and they come in and they say, oh, Natasha, I have got a massive wall. This, is, this wall is so big, it's three meters. And actually three meters is not a massive wall. <laughs> Seven meters is a massive wall. Three meters is, is, is quite, quite normal. And oh, I need a 2.8 meter uh, painting. Mm. And, um, you know, you kind of say, no, you don't. The painting needs to be a little bit smaller because it needs breathing space. So often a client would come into the stand, he'd have a preconceived idea of what they want. Mm. Um, you would tell them that they're wrong or <laughs> in, a, in the nicest possible way. Sure. They'll be insistent. They'll go home and measure, come back the next day and go, you, you were right. I only need 1.5. So the biggest mistake first-time buyers make on every occasion I've ever sold is they've always choose the painting bigger than what they need really and it's your 
responsibility as that artist and as the gallery owner to to lead that person in the right way because as much as I would love to sell the bigger one because obviously I'm going to make much more money it's it's not ethical and it's just not right you know that let them have something that sits beautifully in their home um I'm not going to sell you something that's going to not work for you because you will never buy from me again so I'm I'm always make sure that we we get the client what they want or we kind of lead them into a direction that they're happy with Fantastic. And as you say, then, then you've got that level of trust. Once again, boils down to trust. There you go. And now for someone who has never bought art, um, especially not at a fair, how do I know and trust your brand? I mean, you, you've mentioned marketing uh, being a huge part of promoting yourself at these fairs, but from a, from a credibility and trust point of view, how important do you reckon it is? You know, an art fair... And I'm just using the word art fair as a loose term because there's so many, many, many art fairs in the world, is um, a highly respected platform to sell art. And not everybody can get into them. I mean, they get hundreds and hundreds of applications for a particular fair. Being at an artist fair, which is artists that are allowed to show, or be it a gallery. And what the public don't really know is that we as gallerists and we as artists are vetted very, very strictly before we are allowed to enter the fair. Really? Uh, and that is because they need to double check we're real people and that w- I'm not having my paintings made um, by a painting factory in China and having it delivered to my prestigious art fair in New York yeah. and you buying an artwork for $5,000, but it was made for $100 or less and I'm just seeing this as an easy money-making thing. So when you, uh, when you want to attend an art fair, they do their homework. And if you think they're not watching, they are. Because today, information is everywhere. So they'll Google, they'll do research, they'll even ring up the galleries that you're with, and they'll go, is Natasha Barnes one of your artists? And they'll ask you, what art fairs you've done in the last three years or in the last six months. They've got ways and means of checking and they're very strict with it because if they let the standard of art and their vision board that they have for their particular art fair drop, they won't make any money because they will lose clientele. So it's not just a credibility for the for the artist, it also is for the art fair. So it's a whole chain of events. And if you're an artist that has all that art fair um, sort of experience behind you, like with myself, I have done, I cannot even count how many different art fairs in the world. And it's not necessarily just me. Um, other people have done art fairs on my behalf, like Art London and Aqua Art Fair in Miami. Huge, huge prestigious art fairs that I haven't been to, but my work has been represented by really prestigious galleries. So the, uh, there are checks and balances in place. And you mentioned that there have been occasions where a fair might even have uh, have wrapped up, but you, you get a message, a social media direct message, someone saying that, uh, you know what, this this piece, I just can't get it out of my head. And uh, uh, now you've left town, but I, I need to, I must have it. <laughs> and now you've got a dilemma because you're back home. Do you ship worldwide? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what FedEx is for. <laughs> that happens a lot. People, sometimes you just, you can't make the decision or it might be that you're not in a position financially to buy something. You go to the art fair with a friend and this happens all the time. You're walking around the art fair and you stumble upon something that you just can't get out of your head. So 
it could be six months after the fact someone could email you or, or contact you and say, I've just got to have that painting. And if I'm lucky enough that the painting is back with me in the studio, it gets put into a tube and off it goes. But on many occasions, the paintings will actually be in storage in the country that I attended the art fair, because from there I would ship to another fair perhaps, especially like let's say I've done a fair in, in Singapore, the work goes into my Singapore storage, and then from there it gets shipped to Hong Kong. And if um, just recently I've done a, a month-long exhibition in Bangkok, then the work would get shifted to Bangkok. So it just depends. And then I have set up in all these countries to have um, sort of people work who help me and go and get the work out of the crates or out of the store and then deliver to the clients on behalf if the client's in that country. Wow. So it's quite a logistical uh, feat to try and coordinate all of this international <laughs> shipping stuff. And uh, I imagine that it doesn't always go uh, smoothly. Does it ever get damaged or lost, any of your pieces? Do you know, Mark, I have to be honest with you, in... Um, the 25 years I've been painting, I had one tube of paintings go missing, and it was just before an art fair, um, literally, and it was, I had paid for the stand, I had no art, so um, I took some paintings off my wall, <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend come over and help me take them off the, the canvases, because they were all my own work, it was older work, but it was still good paintings, yeah. took them on the plane with me, put them up, uh, and, um, yeah, sold most of them at the fair. So I've had that emergency, and <laughs> that's not the worst thing that's happened. Um, the only damage I've really had that's broken my heart was um, one of the courier companies put exhaust pipe through one of my paintings, but that, that was locally. Oh. So it's, it's very rare that things happen, so I've only lost one tube and one painting in 25 years, so I consider myself lucky. And were you insured for, for the damage or the, the loss? Yes, you can get insured. Not a bad <laughs> cost to undertake. Um, now, obviously, you're based in South Africa, so you can ship from South Africa and uh, you can get your art all around the world. So now you, you've gotten your art into the home of a happy buyer. What about the, the after sales or the, the follow-ups? Is that an important part of uh, that relationship maintenance for you? Very important because every client that you see on your stand, even if they buy a tiny painting, and just to be clear, I always like to be able to offer my clients paintings across all ranges. People always go, but why do you bring all these little ones? What are the little, they're just in the way. You know, you're wasting money. You could make more money. It's not all about, always about money because the client that's buying the little painting this year might turn out and buy a larger painting next year. So it's about offering them an experience. And sometimes, especially when you go to countries um, that have smaller homes, and I would say like Hong Kong, for example, they don't have massive wall space. They tend to buy smaller paintings. So if, when they walk into your stand, they go, I'm looking for a massive painting. And you go, okay, how big is that? And they go, 90 by 90. And you think, okay, well. <laughs> that, <laughs> it's, all, it's all relative. Yeah, it's all relative. But um, so you've got to make sure that you've got a, a size. It's not a one size fits all. You kind of have something for everyone. And uh, so it's important for that to happen. And in those clients, you database everyone so that when the time comes that you're sending out that newsletter for your next art fair, even the person that only spend uh, 20 pounds with your $50, that person gets a personalized invitation and gets invited to the opening night of the next fair. And they become a collector. They become, um, they feel special. And you do, you treat them and give them the same service as you would someone who has spent $10,000 on a painting. Of course. 
And how many fairs do you do in a year? So for me, the happy medium is um, the least I would do is four and the most I would do is six. So four to six. Um, average, I would say, is, is more on the six side. Mm. And then they basically the regular fairs, I do the same in, in the countries. And then sometimes there would be something new that would crop up. So I would get invited to maybe a show in Switzerland or I'd get invited to a show in Dubai. And then I would try something new. And if that turns into sales or if something good comes of it, then I would go back. But what you've got to remember and what other artists who might be listening to this must remember, that your art fair career or selling through art fairs or through galleries that – because not every artist can do all art fairs for various reasons – some art fairs that don't allow private artists at all on the stands. It's only for galleries or gallery owners. Okay. Um, and some art fairs only for, for artists and not for galleries. So it depends where you pitch yourself. But it's a long-term game. You might go to an art fair, spend a tremendous amount of money and sell nothing or sell just enough to pay your air ticket there because that particular year, everybody was buying mustard <laughs> because mustard is the new color, but you went with your hot pink and, yeah. you know, you just, you lost. And then next year you go back with mustard. Oh, no. <laughs> and guess what? Everybody's buying mustard and you make a fortune. So it's, it's a really strange industry to be in because there is, it's not, there's a lot of luck involved is what I'm trying to say because you never know who's going to step onto your stand and you never know what the public, the buying public are going to want that particular year. And outside influences have a huge um, contribution to how your fear will go down. For example, it might start snowing. And if you're in a tent in a car park in the middle of London, like Battersea Park, yeah, Customers might think, oh, it's snowing today. I'm not going to be bothered and getting all wet and trying to get the baby and the dog and all of this into the art fair. I'm just not going to do this because, believe it or not, some of the art fairs allow dogs in. So okay. it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> so it depends. It's, it, so many external factors can, can really contribute to how your fair goes. But now as someone who's, we've already established, you've got a, a reputation as, a, as a, an adventurer and a intrepid explorer, traveler, do you ever get tired of the traveling for, for work, for, for art fairs? I get asked that question every time I get off the plane and the answer is no, because that's where I get my energy from. And I think when you do something long enough, it becomes part of your DNA. And by nature, I'm an adventurer. I'm a person that always has to be on the move. So I could fly. I mean, I've been... There's been weeks in my life where I've returned from one fair on Thursday and then Friday I've flown to the next one, come home, changed the clothes, changed my suitcase and and gone back again. And all that artwork has to be ready. And another question I get a lot of the time is how do you get your art there and, and do you take it with you? So the answer is both. I ship my work ahead of time with FedEx or similar couriers. Um, and very rarely with crates because then it becomes cumbersome and it's a drama and I'd rather just ship my work in and have it stretched with local businesses because then you also support local business and you build up your contacts so that when you're there, if you need any help at the fair or if you need something to be fixed because it got broken in transit, that you've always got this relationship, once again back to relationships, with a local on the ground 
where they can lend you a hand. And then some of the stuff I do take with me on the aeroplane, um, my dream, this is my dream, is to fly somewhere in the world and not take a painting or a, or a roll of paintings with me. <laughs> but that's never going to happen because there have been times where in the morning I still finishing off the painting and then in the evening I was catching a flight to London or New York. So that yeah. has happened to me on more than one occasion. I normally have some sort of bag with maybe even the little paper ones with me or, a, or an extra canvas or something for a client or there's always something. So I do take some art with me on the plane. So now you've touched down, you're, you're off the plane, you've got suitcases in hand and you're heading for the fair, for the exhibition hall, wherever it's happening. What is the next step from there? How does your art actually get hanging? Who does the heavy lifting? Well, first of all, it's um, who's got the jet lag. So, <laughs> Mike, uh, in recent years, when I was younger, it was off the plane, then party, 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 then it was work. But um, as one uh, matures in life, you realize um, you've, you've, there's this thing called jet lag. So I always try and go a day early just to, so I can acclimatize, especially when I'm going to the States or to the East. Um, not so much with the UK because it's more or less on the same time zone. But um, I would then have a good night's sleep and then the next morning head over to the fair. Um, a lot of people say, oh, have they done this for you or will they help you? There is no they. I am the they. So you kind of uh, pack in an old pair of jeans. You've got your nice comfortable trainers on, your hair's in a bun. You make sure that uh, you look a little bit decent and you take your drill, which I've always got in my suitcase. And if I can tell you the amount of times I've had to report to security because I've got a drill in my suitcase. And, and even more worrisome is that every country in the world has a different um, regulation regarding the drill. So in South Africa, you can put the drill bits and you can put the drill battery in your handbag. Okay. But when you get to Dubai, you're not allowed to. It's got to be in, your, in the luggage part. They approach power tools yeah. entirely differently. Entirely differently. Okay. And let me tell you, if I had a rand or a dollar for every time they took my measuring tape away from me, oh. yeah, I could buy my own plane. <laughs> um, so you can't have measuring tapes in your handbag. So you've got to remember all of these things. And when you're packing for this art fair, you're taking your finest. You know, you've got your cocktail dresses and your high heel shoes and your makeup and your jewelry and your... And the drill, and then the screws, and the <laughs> hammer, and all of this has to go in your suitcase, Whoa. because when I started these fairs, you could basically take this in your handbag with you, but that was in the old days, and now, the new way of doing, of traveling, um, everything has to go into a suitcase, so it makes your suitcase very heavy. So the next morning, when I've recovered from this jet lag, and I've now had a good breakfast, head off to the fair, and waiting for me will be an empty white booth. And the fair management would come and deliver the, the crate. The artwork usually come in crates or the delivery man from the framers or however we're doing that particular fair would come and you'd start unloading the crates and the, the booth would just be littered with packaging material and paintings and you start to hang the booth. It takes about two days. You could do it in a day, but you always come back the next morning and think, oh, that doesn't look right, that doesn't look right. Because no matter how many times you plan it in your head, no matter how many times you do the layout on paper, when it comes to hanging the booth, there's always something that doesn't work. 
And so you rearrange it and rearrange it and you drill more holes into the wall than you've ever drilled in your life and you get the painters out to come and plug the holes <laughs> and they come for the third time and they think, now what's this woman doing with the drill? And eventually by the, the end of day two, you're kind of ready. Um, and so your booth looks great. So it's a lot of work. People think that there's a they that do it, that like they send for me. There's no they. You know, I pay for everything. I pay for myself, pay for my fare, pay yeah. for my hotel, <laughs> pay for my holes. food, drill the holes, <laughs> hang the work. Um, and then uh, luckily the pack down is, uh, the breakdown is not um, so much drama. So you can pretty much do that in an hour or two. But everything has to be obviously put back into the crates. And, and you don't ever sell everything. You, if you want to sell, right, $10,000 worth of art, you've got to take $30,000 worth of stock. Wow. So if you're a large gallery, you might have three, four $400,000 worth of stock with you. And that would be US. And this kind of stuff needs to be packed nicely. I mean, the art was expensive, especially when you are not the owner of the artwork. And you're the gallery, but the artwork um, has a copyright to another artist. I mean, it's really, you're dealing with very, very precious goods. So even the breakdown takes a few hours and it takes you out of it because you've now been on the stand, you've, you've built the stand for two days, you've then gone home, cleaned up, put your cocktail dress on, sta standing around all evening, selling art on, in your high heel shoes, you know, sipping wine with clients, and you're doing that for five days and they're asking you the same questions, which you're happy to answer because they need to trust you in order to, to buy your work. Yeah. And then at the end of it, you're finished. It's Sunday night and the show organizers say to you, okay, well done, great show. We had 30,000 people through over five days, but guess what? You've got to be out of here by 10. And suddenly it's like oh. mass breakdown. So you're trying to pack the paintings up, but the electricians are coming to take the screw the lights out of your, your booth already because they're on a tight budget and they've got to do the next fair. And then they're wheeling the crates in and you're trying to get to your booth, but your neighbor's got their crates in the way and you can't get to your car because, you oh. know, so the truck has parked you in and tempers are flaring and people are hungry and grumpy and they're putting the aircon off if it's in Singapore or they're putting the heating <laughs> off if it's in London and you're freezing and you eventually you think never again and then... You get in the car and you go home or the taxi and you think, whew, that was a good fee. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, a day uh, in, in my life at a fair. What I wanted to find out was you are obviously an established brand now. You, you're a known entity. The name Natasha Barnes carries weight and credibility. And does that really help at, for someone now who's trying to make a name for themselves and, and feels like they're an unknown and trying to break into the world of international art fairs, how much of a mountain is it to climb? It's a long journey. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And when you start art and life on this career path, you don't actually know how it's going to go. I mean, I'm sure that everybody starts out and, and, and wishes for that quick success. And there's no such thing as quick success. It's, it's what Gary Player, the famous uh, South African golfer, once said, Someone said to him, oh, you're so lucky. And I think his words were, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And it's the same with me. I've really worked unbelievably hard to get to this point in my life. But it does help, you know, um, that some of the biggest, um, how can I put this, thrills that I've had in my life is that often I'd hear people walk through past my stand and go, oh, there's Natasha Barnes's work. Or sometimes I, I walk down the high street in London and I, I went into John Lewis and, 
and I uh, went into Selfridges once and my work was in Selfridges on the fourth floor and then my work was in John Lewis and um, then I walked down the road some more and then there was some work in Debenhams in print form and then I walked down the road some more and then there was a gallery that had my work and I thought, I pinched myself and I thought, you know, here you are, girl from South Africa and you're all over the world. You, you, you've managed this by yourself in the era before social me- media and what is the key? And the key, I think, is consistency, being true to yourself and not being afraid to own your talent. People say, oh, you're so talented. Don't go, oh, no, this whole thing. You go, thank you. If you own your talent, you have that confidence to be true to your brand. And to be honest with you, Mark, I actually think I've still got a long way to go. I think um, I, I'm hoping there's still bigger things to come, but... I'm playing in a space now where I'm very comfortable. I'm very happy. I love dealing with my clients. Um, there have been moments when I've been watching TV and, I, and I've been looking and thinking, oh, my goodness, that's my painting. And, and that is the biggest thrill of all. And, and there have been times where people have rung me up and said, um, I'm on some island off Australia and I'm lying in, in my bedroom and there's a Natasha Bonds print on the wall. Or somebody's walked into a hotel and or I've walked into a hotel this really happened and I was sitting there and I was thinking can't see so far but that looks so familiar (laughs) that looks really good (laughs) and then I go up to the buffet and I think oh my god this is all Natasha Barnes's paintings and standing there in this restaurant and 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 this has happened on two occasions and once in in South Africa and once in London and I just thought Gosh, this this whole space is filled with my with my original art. Wow. And and that to me is those pinch me moments that keep me going and I've never ever wanted to give up in my life, by the way, and I never will, but that's what made the ride extra special. I think that uh, to be able to to be in that position where you you feel like you've been true to yourself, you've been true to the journey, true to your art. It's been worth it at the end of the day. You've, you've enriched the world. You've made the world a more beautiful place. And you've, you've brought your work into the homes of people that appreciate it. I mean, for any artist, that is job done. Wouldn't you agree? No, absolutely. It's, it's just I have to just pat myself on the back every day for um, accepting the life that was waiting for me and letting go of, you know, those dreams that you have, you want to be this and you want to be that. And just to say, you know what, I've accepted my life that was waiting for me and I've made a success of it. And for the artists that are listening to this right now and who are are nodding, who are feeling like, yes, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about and I want to walk down that same path. Where can we find more doses of inspiration and artistic insight? And for those that possibly want to connect on a more personal one-on-one level, where can we find you on social media? So on social media, um, you can find me at Natasha Barnes and it's uh, underscore Natasha Barnes underscore, just to be clear, because there's a really, uh, another really well-known Natasha Barnes in the world, I might add, and she is a rock climber. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Another adventurer. She's a really good rock climber. She's like some world champion. So (laughs) over the past 20 years, (laughs) Natasha and Natasha have had this um, sort of little 
uh, onward battle about our media platforms because if if I have the dot com and then she's got the dot org and if I've got the dot co's and then she's got oh so it's been quite crazy but recently I've been Natasha at Natasha Barnesing myself and then she, when I'm tagging myself as one does and then she's yeah. reached out and said you're tagging the wrong Natasha you hashtagging the wrong Natasha <laughs> so if you do get to the rock climbing champion of the world um, that's the other Natasha just find me my my logo is black and it's got the natasha bonds uh, brand on it and uh, you're welcome to reach out at any time for now it's been really really great getting to know the artist natasha bonds in your living room in conversation and uh, it's been a real pleasure just catching up over a, over a cup of coffee and getting a look under the hood, getting to understand what happens in your studio, in your creative space, uh, what inspires you, what drives you, and getting some some real pro insights into the business of art and art fairs and selling art. This has been a trip. This has been a journey. And uh, I think there's more stories to tell here, Natasha. I think we've just scratched the surface with these first <laughs> couple of podcasts, and you'll be hearing more. Keep your ears to the ground. <laughs> and... Uh, from me, Mike Charles, and Natasha Bonds. We'll be coming to you again really soon. Watch the space. Ciao for now. <laughs>